Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Welcome to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm your host, Pietro Bordletto, media editor for FNS Reports. And as always, I'm joined by my two co-media editors in FNS Science and Reviews, Blake and Daylon. How are you guys? Doing great. Very good to see you all, as always. Likewise, I'm feeling well. Looking forward to this episode. Excited to talk to you guys. Blake, special congratulations. Sounds like you took your oral boards last week. Congratulations on behalf of me and all listeners who are eagerly awaiting you becoming a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist. Pressure's on now. Just don't check the A-box side, everyone, here in about five weeks. So, I have a refresh and a calendar reminder set up for me and all the listeners. Thank you so much, Pietro. But until that time comes, we do have a couple of articles we wanted to talk with all of you about. This month in FNS Reports, there was a really nice article entitled Follicular Phase Cycle Programming Using Estradiol in Oocyte Donors, a Conventional and Effective Approach. So I think people who live in the ART space know that third-party reproduction is one of the fastest growing sectors in our field, with sometimes double-digit growth year after year. But with more cycles, both donor cycles and non-donor cycles, clinics have started to notice that it's tough to scale. It's tough to handle some of this new volume, particularly what it does for the embryology lab when you start stacking a bunch of cycles all together. One of the ways that people have been thinking about how to maximize what a clinic is able to do cycle-wise is using hormones for programming. OCPs, vaginal rings, injectable antagonists, even progestogens and estradiol in sometimes the preceding menstrual cycle to give people a semblance of control and be able to space things out. But unfortunately, not all of these options are equal. OCP priming, for example, has been associated with longer durations of stim, more consumptions of gonadotropins. The antagonists are expensive and invasive, and some suppress the pituitary so much so that you can end up having a hard time triggering with an agonist later in the cycle. This paper was nice because they used a donor egg model to explore this idea of cycle programming, particularly they looked at estradiol. So while estradiol has been studied in kind of traditional luteal phase priming, less is known about how the estradiol performs when you start in the follicular phase and continue it until stimulation is, is started. So this study specifically was a prospective interventional study of egg donors at a single center in India conducted between 2020 and 2021. And these egg donors had previously undergone at least two unprogrammed stimulation cycles, meaning no priming whatsoever. And when these donors returned to cycle again, they were given estradiol hemihydrate, four milligrams BID, something that I'm not familiar with, but I Googled just means that it's a more hydrated form of estradiol. And Dale and you'll explain what all of that means for us later. But basically they started the estradiol on day two of their period and kept the estradiol going four milligrams BID until they decided to start stimulation for these donors, which they were trying to synchronize with recipients. So when the recipients started their menstrual cycle, they would start the stimulation. This specific cycle, the one where estradiol was used, was compared to a previous unprogrammed simulation cycle. And what they were hoping to look at is compare how this cycle 
predicted to that last cycle. The primary outcomes of interest here were the number of eggs retrieved, how long stimulation lasted, and the total dose of gonadotropins used. And then the secondary outcomes were how many mature eggs did we get? Did they fertilize? What was the blastulation rate? And finally, once we transferred the embryos that came from these donor oocytes, did they result in pregnancies? So what do they find? Of the 93 donors that they delayed cycle start with estradiol, they delayed anywhere from two to 10 days with a mean of five days. So a decent amount of delay using that estradiol. And what they found was that the mean number of oocytes retrieved was higher when you programmed with estradiol, 36 versus 34. And this was statistically significant, but there were no differences in how long stimulation took in terms of days or the amount of gonadotropins consumed. For the secondary outcomes, luckily they found no differences in maturation rates, fertilization rates, or blastulation rates. And finally, there were no differences in implantation or pregnancy rates when you used these donor oocytes and transfer them into recipients. The authors highlight in their discussion that this follicular estradiol programming method is ideal for the donor population. First, because it doesn't appear to have any negative impact on STEM, which is what their data showed, both for the primary and secondary outcomes. It doesn't appear to impact transfer outcomes, which they also showed. Um, but most importantly, it's donor-friendly and it's clinic-friendly. And by this, they mean that it's easy. It doesn't, you don't need to have medications on hand in the donor's home already before the cycle starts. They don't need to remember to monitor for ovulation in a previous cycle. Beyond that, the fact that they were using estradiol hemihydrate, there's some real benefits when you compare it to what else you can use for cycle programming. So for patients who have contraindications to full dose OCPs, this is a potentially nice option. It's much more cost effective than the GnRH antagonist injections. And really at the end of the day for a lot of patients will avoid several weeks of unnecessary exposure to OCPs that need to be started in the luteal phase. So to summarize what they were, were able to show was if you start estradiol, four milligrams BID in the follicular phase in these donor oocyte cycles, you could prolong cycle start to get them timed up with a donor recipient cycle and not sacrifice the clinical or the cycle outcomes, which I thought was pretty cool. Blake, you're someone who often has to manage recipients, donors. You have patients who are eager to start, but sometimes the clinic can't accommodate the volume all at once. What are you guys doing locally to program these cycle starts to allow spacing out or kind of an appropriate volume to enter your embryology lab? So we commonly will uh, utilize a similar approach. We'll have patients when they give us a call, have them on a combined OCP pill after going through a thorough checklist to see if they have risk factors for, as you alluded to, combined OCPs. Um, or just a progesterone-only pill if they do have, in fact, some risk factors. So those are the most common things. We do patients sometimes do a natural cycle start. Obviously, that makes things a little bit more tricky in terms of scheduling for everyone involved, but for the patients who have gone through previously and may not have responded to meds very well, or they're known to have diminished ovarian reserve, sometimes we'll do a natural start for them. So this may be, might be a good alternative, but I know in general, I am interested about this because OCPs are fairly cheap overall uh, in general. And so, and it seems like this is something that might take place of, or basically be the uh, same approach as estrace priming. Is, is that correct? 
effectively the same thing. And I think there's a lot of clinics in the U.S. that utilize estrogen priming in the luteal phase. I know here at Cornell, we very commonly use estradiol patches started in the luteal phase, eight to 10 days after ovulations occurred to suppress that late luteal rise in FSH, hopefully synchronize the cohort of follicles, and then we'll stop that with simulation. I think this one's a slightly different paradigm because this is estradiol being started on the day of menses, on day two, without that luteal start, without the requirement of having medications on hand, having monitored for ovulation. So I can see definitely the the angle here where this is donor-friendly, certainly clinic-friendly, and gives you that degree of control anywhere from two to 10 days to delay that cycle start without negatively impacting how the stim goes and how those oocytes behave once they're retrieved. Yeah, I think interesting to me, I started reading this and and maybe from a cynical position of this is about the commercialization and the and the amplification of 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 volume. But you know, as you realize, you guys realize uh, in particular is that it's really about making it work for the embryology lab, which is really best for all patients which makes a strong rationale for it. And, and the other thing about that, the really annoying thing about humans is the compliance, right? So if you can't, I was wondering, why do you need to do this? And, and the question with the donors in particular is, according to the authors, sometimes compliance can be an issue. Um, and I'm not familiar with that. You know, the mice, they take the gavage when I give them the gavage, guys. So I, I can understand all of that in terms of rationale. What I'm wondering about is a mechanism a little bit. You know, why wouldn't you just do this for all comers? Why would you ever do luteal estradiol in this case, once you have this study? Is there, do you think a, a is it less uh, robust than a luteal phase treatment? What do you guys think there? Yeah, that's a great question, Dale. And I think that my hesitation with applying this liberally to everyone is that we know that there's certainly a cohort of patients that stands to benefit from having that late luteal FSH rise being suppressed to really try to organize that cohort of follicles that we're gonna retrieve. Most patients, kind of the average IVF patient probably doesn't need that. So I think the, I wanna avoid the therapeutic misconception where if it works well in this population, why don't we just use it for everyone? These patches are expensive. We use estradiol patches and for a box of four patches, it's anywhere from 50 to hundred bucks if you're paying out of pocket. And if you're doing that for several days in a row, that can really add up for patients. So I think people are eager to figure out who are the patients that stand to benefit the most from luteal phase or follicular phase priming. And if so, is there a, a cost-effective way to do it to minimize the burden for patients? But also secretly for us in the clinics, being able to space out, organize, and plan a busy stimulation week for patients, for the lab, for the doctors. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that these studies I, I find very interesting and it kind of goes along the lines of what we talked about in the past, Petra, regarding medroxyprogesterone acetate and suppression instead of or in lieu of an antagonist when the patient is undergoing STEM. So as these studies come out, we're starting to find out different ways to have patients have good response and good stems and good outcomes with more patient-friendly and cost-effective methods. And when you and I were texting back and forth about those different studies that have been recently released in FNS and ones we've talked about in the past, I was like, you know what, I'm going to try it. This is a FERPRES patient just dropped in my door and I'm going to give it a try. And it worked great. So her LH was extremely suppressed the whole time, responded well to an antagonist trigger. So I think it's great that we have studies that come out like this and give us a different angle when we're doing stimulation. Love it. I love to see when uh, articles that are 
published that are high quality change our practice. Let's transition now to an article from FNS Reviews. Blake, you have an article entitled Prognosis and Unexplained Recurrent Pregnancy Loss, a Systematic Review and Quality Assessment of Current Clinical Prediction Models. Tell us some more. Thanks, Pietro. So I'm going to go into a little bit of a background of this study, as I always like to when I talk about articles initially. So recurrent pregnancy loss, as you all know, is a very heterogeneous condition and it has multiple known etiologies. And despite extensive diagnosis testing offered to couples with RPL, which I'm going to refer to recurrent pregnancy loss as throughout this discussion, um, we only find a cause in about 25 to 50%, frustratingly. And so the authors point out that there are various prediction models that provide an estimate of subsequent chance of live birth in couples that have RPL. However, they also point out that these models need to undergo accurate validation and impact assessment prior to being implemented into daily practice, which is what they uh, did in this study. So looking at the methods, they identified about 2000 potentially relevant studies, but ultimately whittled it down to only seven for analysis. The number of participants varied anywhere from 165 to 1250. Six were single center studies that took place in, in Australia, the UK, Japan, Israel, and Denmark. And there was one multi-center study that did interestingly not document the locations of the participating centers. A couple of limitations I wanted to discuss in the methods that the authors do very transparently point out as well. The definition of RPL varied amongst the studies, This, uh, some of which had two consecutive losses or three consecutive losses, which is still common today, but the gestational age varied quite a bit. Some were less than 20 weeks for their cutoff, less than 22 weeks, or even less than 24 weeks, and two did not even mention gestational age. Two studies were not clear on how they made the diagnosis of unexplained RPL or what treatments they ultimately offered to the patients. The authors also assessed the risk for bias, and then they determined that all studies were at a very high risk of bias, and they pointed out this was mainly probably due to selection bias and also a lack of having a model performance analysis amongst these studies. And uh, this also could be due to in part from missing data from the studies. I would encourage the listeners to go and um, not only to read the article, but also to look at figure two. This figure provides their predictions of patient prognosis into three categories. So low risk, moderate risk, and high risk patients with unexplained RPL. And these categories are based on, as you would expect, patient age, number of prior losses, and the number of previous live births. So although the prognosis varies very widely in between these studies, I think it's interesting to look at, but also just to see how these different studies really give very different ranges of the live births um, in terms of their prediction models. So the authors conclude that none of the evaluated studies that uh, they looked at followed the appropriate steps for model development, such as internal validation, sample size calculation, which can also lead to a phenomenon called overfitting. And I didn't know what that meant, so I did some digging. And so this is basically when you have the production of an analysis that corresponds too closely or exactly to a particular set of data, and the model would therefore become less accurate when tested in new but similar individuals subsequently. So that's overfitting, and they, and they had stated that all of these studies had a risk for overfitting. And they also discussed that external validation of existing models is strongly encouraged. So 
couple of things I just want to mention about this. Although the authors didn't find much of a use of a predictive model or prognosis in RPL patients, this study did point out to me that there is definitely a need for more research in unexplained RPL and regarding prognosis and treatments and also the flaws of prior studies pointed out from the authors, hopefully our pointers and how we can move forward in doing studies. So what do you all think? Um, the authors are very transparent that these models were not helpful, interestingly. And so, and I know this is a, this is a subject that as patients and providers can be very frustrating. And sometimes we both feel kind of helpless and it's like, well, eventually you'll get pregnant, but just got to keep trying. And then patients will seek out all these interesting therapies that just don't have much evidence behind. So, so what do you guys think? Well, I have to say that reading this, I just recognize how tough it is to do anything in this patient population, and especially in the field of assisted reproduction, which is so dynamic and, and young. And when you look at the, the dates of these papers, I also think that's really relevant. You know, most of them are from the 90s. Uh, average year uh, was 2002, so 20 years ago now. Um, so I wonder if you know, these models need to maybe incorporate some of the more modern technology or, or modern uh, ways of, of analyzing these patient populations and also take into account the fact that clinical practice has changed. So I just think it's so hard to address this. And there's also all these other unknowns vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, within each cycle, there's variables, the doctors, the embryologists, you know, there's so many things that can impact each cycle. I understand that in many cases, there's a, a known or a defined or identified etiology for the RPL. And I think in those cases they're actionable, but you know, 50% or more it's unknown. So I get it. at the end of this, I'm kind of scratching my head. They set out to validate, found out that nothing was really um, useful, but I think it's a good uh, jumping off point to maybe uh, uh, redirect the efforts and, and, and improve. I just don't know where to start with that. Uh, what do you guys think about how would you improve uh, the models for prediction. Is there any direction in this paper that you saw? Yeah, that's um, that's a good question, and and I agree, it is tough. And you know, so much of our clinical practice has changed. And and I mean, even not that long ago, everyone was getting thrombophilia workups for recurrent pregnancy loss patients. And now we know, you know, unless you have a personal history or strong family history, you don't you don't do that anymore. So so much has changed over time, and so. Uh, and even in these studies that they ultimately only had seven, they still didn't have all of the workup that we do in patients routinely. So it's a very difficult topic to tackle. So, so I don't know. I mean, there's, there's definitely a need for research. I don't know what the ultimate answer is, though. I think there's a need for research, but more, more than ever, I, I'm starting to feel like we just need the, the, the need for high quality research. I'm involved in, in writing up two Cochrane reviews right now and having to go through some hundreds of RCTs, you really get to see firsthand from the literature how variable the quality is, the reporting of outcomes, the reporting of some very fundamental, very basic things like defining outcomes. And maybe it's a reflection on our field being so new, which we are, right? We've really only been around for 40 years. But sometimes it's a reflection of, I think, the, the quality of work that we're accepting in our journals. And one of the things that I'll highlight, FNS in the last 12 months has brought on a methodologic editor. So every paper that's being submitted to FNS is now being reviewed by a methodologic reviewer. And people who are submitting articles to FNS will often get comments from that reviewer as part of their peer review. And the goal for these things is really to improve the quality of the stuff that we're publishing. 
so that when we are writing these systematic reviews, these meta-analyses, we have very obvious definition of our outcome, very obvious, obvious definition of our exposures to hopefully improve the utility of these systematic reviews when they get updated in the future. All right, with that, we're going to transition and end off with, uh, I think, a pair of articles now from FNS Science. Um, Dalen's breaking the rules a little bit and bringing two articles to the table, uh, but they're really related. So I'm going to let Dalen tell you the story. Not just related, Pietro, I would say conjoined. Uh, these are two stories talking about methods for improving in vitro conditions for growth. Because, you know, as long as we've had assisted reproduction in vitro fertilization, that's been a major goal to get the embryos to grow better. And this is about a heterodynamic uh, transmembrane protein called fertilin beta. Okay, so there's many integrins uh, that are these heterodimeric transmembrane proteins made up of an alpha and beta subunit. There's 18 alpha subunits and eight beta subunits in mammals, many different known com uh, combinations. And one of these makes up this ligand called fertilin B. Okay, it's one of the best characterized. It's present on the membrane of spermatozoa and interacts with another integrin on the surface of oocytes to mediate that primary sperm oocyte interaction. There was a serendipitous observation that a cyclic peptide derived from pertillin beta and homologous to the sperm atom two protein binding site, which was supposed to inhibit fertilization, that was the expected outcome, actually had the opposite effect. Of course, this was in mice. And in mice also was shown that with 10 times less spermatozoa than control, you could get the same fertilization uh, rate and provide healthy pups over three generations. So based on these results in mice, there were these two studies that were recently published in Fertility and Sterility Science, led primarily by Jean-Philippe Wolf with co-lead authors Serge Pierre Romana in one study and Ahmed Ziat in the other. Um, in the first, they ran a maturation study using immature human oocytes uh, that were GV stage and showed that this cyclic fertilin peptide improved the percentage of euploid metaphase two oocytes. But I think what was more interesting here is because they also showed that uh, the molecule binds, they made a fluorescently conjugated peptide and showed that the molecule actually binds to the uh, membrane of human embryoblastomeres, thereby speculating that perhaps this compound may also have a positive effect on embryo development during pre-implantation stages. So based on this hypothesis, they moved on to uh, working with thawed human embryos, also the GV stage eggs. This was all uh, generated with approval of the ethics boards. And with the human embryos, they were thought at the three to four cell stage uh, and sh ultimately showed uh, using transcriptomic analysis and other methods that this cyclin fertilin peptide improved blastocyst formation by about 20% um, and significantly increased the trophectoderm cell number um, without modifying the ICM, perhaps speaking to the mechanism there, I don't know, uh, related to implantation, and uh, also increased the in vitro hatching rate from 14% to 45%. Now, I, I will say in any of these studies, it's really important to take it all the way and, and evidence from mouse showing that healthy pups being born with less spermatozoa over multiple generations has not as much value because mouse reproduction is so robust. It's really encouraging to see that uh, this compound is actually improving um, anything 
uh, during the in vitro process. And I, I'm really excited to see and, and, and waiting to see if they're able to maybe bring this into clinical trials. Do you think that the both of you guys I'm asking, do you think that this is, has met the threshold maybe for moving a compound like this into clinical trial with actual transfer of embryos? I want to first understand why it stimulated trophectoderm growth, but not inner cell mass growth. What, what's the mechanism there? Because right there, I think there's some evidence to say that you are maybe sparing the part that becomes the embryo from being affected by this compound, but potentially impacting how the placenta will implant, invade, and develop in how that supports a pregnancy to me. Um, why do you think that there's a difference? That's a really great point. Uh, you really are a scientist at heart, Pietro. It's so, it's inspiring to see. Um, I would chalk that up to just the, the, the kinetics and the entry point, you know, the trophectoderms on the outside, right? And when they showed the binding to the blastomeres, it's at the membrane. This is an integrin, which are typically focused at the membranes, intercellular membranes, I mean. And, and oftentimes those are also cellular signaling hubs. So I could envision hypothetically, perhaps, that the peptide is really only binding the blastomeres that are facing the media, namely the trophectoderm, and perhaps having an effect on the signaling centers there, leading to increased proliferation or survival, um, and perhaps then contributing to a more robust trophectoderm for implantation. So that's, that's, I think, a really exciting point that you brought up here. It's not just like, hey, we put this in the media and it looks like it worked. It's nice to see that there's a potential mechanism here that makes sense and uh, might actually be testable. Now, I know, you know, adding things to the media, we always have to obviously be very careful about what does this have in terms of implications of, you know, is there even more of an increased risk of imprinting or, you know, things like that. We have to always be careful about all these different things. So, I mean, can, from analyzing these papers, is there something obvious that would lead us to think that maybe we shouldn't be doing that? Or is this something that would be harmless to just add to the media? What do you think? Is it expensive? Things like that. Well, I can imagine the, the production of the compound could be scaled up and made uh efficient, inexpensive. I, I'm with you. It's always a concern whenever you're adding anything new uh, to think of the unknown unknowns and downstream effects, especially when you're talking about development and potentially the germline. But uh, that said, I think there's a precedent for mucking around with the culture conditions. Uh, I, I know at our center, we, we've used co-culture in the past, whether or not that has a measurable effect or positive influence on embryo development. I don't think you could say that it had a deleterious influence. And that is much less defined. And I think um, more uh, complicated, I think, when you're talking about potentially depleting things from the media as, as well as adding unknown. So while I wouldn't say that it's absolutely safe, um, I would say that there's a precedent and I would be comfortable. I would say it's met the existing threshold for an attempt at transferring some of these embryos. And I'd be really interested to see um, what kind of progress they could make on that front. You know, and this may exist, but I haven't seen it with my own two eyes. I would love if there were kind of a consensus way when we are doing things in the ART laboratory that have met this threshold for the animal data suggests that we should test this in humans. A, a, a consensus, a, a discrete set of ways that we would test this in a way that proves both efficacy, but also proves short and long-term safety. And if we apply that same rigorous set of, you must meet these criteria in this specific way, 
to every intervention that we're choosing to apply to, to, to culture, to manipulation of embryos, to blasting a laser in an embryo. I think for me, that would really raise my confidence level that these things truly work and are safe and may benefit patients. Yeah, it's kind of what you were speaking to before on the systematic reviews. We need a standard codified method that is universally appreciated and accepted. And then we can really unpack some of these questions. And I think uh, that people are onto that and, and it's, we're beginning to, to move in that direction. So uh, stay tuned, Pietro. All right, gents, always good to get together and talk about the literature. Um, thank you all for listening and tuning into another episode of FNS Unplugged. As always, you can listen to this episode wherever you're getting your podcast currently, but also please check out the FNS on air where we run through the upcoming issue of fertility and sterility. And I'll make a small plug, stay tuned for a special feature episode every month called FNS Microdose, where we'll be interviewing authors one-on-one -on -one and finding articles that we think are worth highlighting and just digging a little deeper in with the person who actually wrote it rather than a couple of guys who read it and downloaded the PDF. That's it for us for today. We'll see you again next month. Blake, Dalon, see you soon. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect the Fertility and Sterility family of journals or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.